Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel. This morning, we are jumping into a new book, having finished up our summer in the Psalms. And as you're turning there, I invite any children who will be participating in our children's class this morning to make your way there to the back room. Our volunteers will be there to greet you and instruct you in the truth of God's Word there in that context this morning. But as I mentioned in here this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel and beginning our journey through this wonderful book. And we're going to cover all of chapter 1 this morning. So we're going to read all of chapter 1 just as we read the passage every single week. And then after that, we'll take a minute to pray. It may seem like a long passage because sometimes we're not used to reading God's Word out loud for that long. But it takes less than five minutes to read chapter 1 out loud. And I'm just reminded of Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where he told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. There's no more important thing we can do this morning. The words we read in the Bible are God's words. And so if we want to hear from him, let's hear from his word this morning. So let me read for us 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, and then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been 
pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. Even though, as we just sang, we have nothing to bring. Even though all we brought to the table is our sin and rebellion and wickedness, yet in your mercy and kindness to us, you sent Christ to live in our place and to die in our place and to victoriously rise from the grave that we may one day join him in that resurrection. Father, I pray that we would always keep our eyes fixed on Christ and the hope that we have and all that he has accomplished for us. Father, we know because of what Jesus has done, because of what he has done, we have every confidence as we gather this morning under your word that by the power of your spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, you intend to change us this morning. You intend by the truth of your word to make us more like Jesus this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see your glory on display in this passage, that we would see your sovereignty over all things, that we would see your mercy and grace on display for how you have work for our salvation throughout history. And so, Father, I pray that we would make much of you this morning, that you would fix our minds and our eyes on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning, that I would speak only what is true of your word, that none of us would be led astray, but that we would pursue the truth of what you have to say to us from the scriptures this morning. And we pray all of this in the glorious and worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I am excited to go on this journey through 1 Samuel with you. And I believe the Lord has a lot to teach us through this book. And as with any book of the Bible, before we dive into the details, it's important for us to, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. It's important for us to get a lay of the land before we jump into those details. And so I want to take just a few moments and be sure we understand kind of where this book finds itself 
in the history of Israel, what the time period is uh, that the events of this book take place. But even backing up from that a bit, just to, to let you know, we don't really know with certainty who wrote 1 Samuel. In, in fact, First and Second Samuel were originally one book at some point in history. They were divided into two because it was too long, and so they became two books, but originally it was all written as one. And we don't know for sure who it was written by. There's some strength to the position that perhaps Samuel wrote the portion up until he died, and then Nathan and Gad, two of the prophets, carried on the work and finished it, but we can't know that with certainty. Nor do we know precisely when the book was finished being written, when it was kind of delivered as a a, a product to God's people. It obviously would have been sometime after the events of the book, so after the end of probably King David's reign. There's a lot we don't know, but what we do know What we do know is when the events of the book themselves take place. That we know with certainty. And so that's what I want to talk about for a minute. So the time period of 1 Samuel falls right after the time period of the book of Judges. So we're around roughly, give or take, 50 to 100 years. We're around 1000 BC when 1 Samuel is starting. So the time of the Judges has ended and then we are heading directly into 1 Samuel, which is really serves as a bridge between the time of the judges and the establishment of the monarchy in Israel when Saul is anointed king and David is anointed king. And so Samuel serves in this in-between period leading to the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Now, the reason that's important for us to know is that we need to remind ourselves of what the world was like or what this area, what Israel was like, what the culture was like, in the time of the judges, because that feeds into what's happening in 1 Samuel. So the book of Judges itself begins in the early days when when God's people are getting settled into the promised land. Remember, they were rescued from Egypt. They sinned, and because of that, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But Joshua leads them victoriously into the promised land, and they get settled there. But within one generation... Within one generation of being settled there, after the defeat of Jericho, they were already worshiping idols. So this is how near the beginning of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bow down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Bells and the Ashtaroth. And because of that, God throughout Judges would would raise up a nation from around them, and he would use that nation to bring his judgment on his people because they were worshiping, falling down and worshiping idols, the, the Bells and the Ashtaroth and these gods of the nations who were around them. And so God would judge them. He would bring judgment against them from these surrounding nations. And then when things finally got bad enough for the people to realize their wickedness and rebellion, they would cry out to God for deliverance. Please deliver us from this people. And God would answer that prayer by raising up a judge who would then lead their army into victory with God's power to overcome that nation who was oppressing them. And then they would finally come to a place of peace and ease as they were delivered from the oppression of the nations that God had brought, used to bring judgment on them. But almost instantaneously, when peace was established, guess what Israel did all over again? 
they started bowing down to the idols, to the bells and the astroth and to the gods of the surrounding nations. God would bring a nation against them to judge them. They would be defeated and oppressed. They would cry out to the Lord, realize their wickedness. He would raise up a judge, deliver them. And then guess what they did again? They began to bow down to the false gods over and over and over. That cycle repeats. And generation after generation in Judges, they see God's merciful hand delivering his people. But even then, even then they remained in their wickedness. So by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, the last words of the book of Judges are this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's that culture, that's a statement about the culture of Israel when 1 Samuel begins. That's the status. There was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And look, we see this, we're going to see this clearly on display in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. So for example, in verse 3, we've already been introduced to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were serving as priests of the Lord. These guys are the priests. They're serving in the temple. And we find out in the first few chapters in chapter 2 that these two priests, the sons of Eli, are by force taking the sacrifices from God's people so that they could go cook it up and eat it themselves. Taking the best of the fat, the best of what they could take from God's people. And not only that, Chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 22, says that Hophni and Phinehas were laying with the women, serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These were wicked, wicked men. And if we've been paying attention to the pattern of the book of Judges that I just recalled for us, we know what should be coming next for God's people. What should be coming is judgment from God by raising up a foreign nation. And in fact, we will eventually see that in chapter 4 when The Philistines come and they defeat the army of Israel and they capture the Ark of the Covenant and take it back to their land. God does, in fact, bring judgment. But but here's what I want to be sure we see as we start 1 Samuel. I want us to notice how 1 Samuel actually breaks the pattern of the book of Judges. Because here they are, they're in a time where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The very priests of God are wicked and rebellious men. And yet, 1 Samuel doesn't begin with the story of God's judgment. It begins with the story of God sovereignly raising up a man who would faithfully lead his people as judge and prophet and kingmaker, Samuel. You see, the pattern of judges breaks because in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the people of God have not cried out for deliverance from their oppressor. In fact, it simply doesn't happen. Even when the Philistines attack them, they never cry out for God's help. But even though, even though they don't cry out, even though they don't cry out, God was already at work, sovereignly orchestrating the deliverance of his people through the lowly and humble woman, Hannah. God's people are in active rebellion against him, refusing to repent and cry out to him for deliverance from the Philistines. Yet he still He's still faithfully at work in unexpected ways through unexpected people to bring deliverance and keep his promises to them. Now, this should sound like a familiar story, right? Romans 5.10 reminds us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, God was 
sovereignly orchestrating the sending of Christ into the world through a humble woman while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses, he was working to send Christ into the world, even though we had not cried out to him. And here he is preparing to send Samuel into the world to deliver his undeserving people. You see, God works for his people even when they're not working for themselves. God works for his people even when they're not working for themselves. Even when they haven't cried out for deliverance, God is still faithful. And so 1 Samuel shows us that in order to accomplish his purposes, what God is going to do is consistently prefer to work through the humble and lowly to exalt himself to deliver his people. We're going to see that here in chapter one, that God is sovereignly at work to bring deliverance for his people, but he always does it in unexpected ways that the world would never anticipate. And so here are the three ways I want us to see God at work in first Samuel chapter one. First, the Lord humbles the faithful. The Lord humbles the faithful. Second, the Lord hears the cry of the humble. And third, the Lord uses the humble for his glory. So let's just start there at the beginning and see that the Lord humbles the faithful. So let's, let's look back at verses 1 through 8. So these, these verses serve to set the scene for chapter 1 and, and, and reveal what God is up to, to to bring us to this first account, this first chapter in 1 Samuel. So in verse 1, we're introduced to Elkanah and We don't know a whole lot about him other than the lineage that is given here. But the one thing that we are told about him in verse 2 is that he had two wives. Now, throughout the narrative, it seems that Elkanah is framed as a a godly and upright man seeking to do things that are godly and upright. But I just want to clarify, that doesn't mean that this particular aspect of his life is good or upright for him to have two wives. In fact, almost every time, if not every time, there's a situation in the Old Testament where there are, there's a polygamous marriage where there are two wives. It, it, it never goes well, right? It's always framed as causing brokenness and bitterness and jealousy and manipulation. We see that with Rachel and Leah. We see it with Sarah and Hagar. It's, it's, it just never works for Solomon. It destroys him. In other words, this is never put forward as a model for for us to follow. I just want to make that clear. The New Testament makes clear that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And Christ is committed to his singular bride, the church. And men who are married are to be committed to their singular bride as a representation of that relationship. But nevertheless, Eli has two wives. And you see there the name of the one was Hannah. Verse 2, the name of the other was Peninnah. And then we're told at the end of verse 2 that Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So that kind of sets the scene. And then we're, verse 3, we're told that Elkanah would faithfully every year take his family to Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord was, though in chapter 1 it's sometimes referred to as the house of the Lord. It's sometimes referred to as the temple, but it was this house of the Lord tabernacle type place in Shiloh. And he would go every year to worship and to make sacrifices. And when God's people would sacrifice, they were allowed in the law to take part of that sacrifice and to eat it themselves. Not all of it, certain portions of it they could eat from. And so Elkanah would distribute those portions among his family. And it tells us that 
that he would give portions to Peninnah, verse 4, to Peninnah and to her sons and daughters. But verse 5, it says, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, I want to pause there and be sure we don't kind of fly over that verse. Because the author of Samuel, because God himself wants to make clear why Hannah wasn't able to have children, the Lord had closed her womb. And as if that statement is not clear enough, it is repeated once again in verse 6. It says her rival, and that's referring to the other wife, Peninnah, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because, and it repeats it, because the Lord had closed her womb. So we're going to return to this, but I just want to be sure you see it in verses 5 and 6, that God's word, that the author of Samuel wants us to know this. He wants us to know why her womb was closed. But he also wants us to see the suffering that that caused Hannah. And it was indeed intense, terrible suffering. Look, it's difficult for any woman who uh, who is not able to have children or who goes through a long period before she's able to have children, it's already difficult just in normal life, right? Just to, just to go through life, it's, it's hard. It's a hardship. And it's doubly hard when people around you, maybe around your age, are having children and, and you're not able to. It is extremely difficult already. But then imagine this situation piled on top of that because it is, it is likely, we do not know this for sure, but it is likely that the whole reason Elkanah has a second wife is because Hannah was not able to bear children. And so he brings Peninnah on. So that in and of itself would have been horrible for Hannah to deal with. But even if that wasn't the reason he brings Peninnah on, it's terrible because she is just a wicked, evil, cruel person, right? Who does this? She would provoke her grievously to intentionally irritate her when they're going to worship, right? Uh, it's terrible on its own, but it's exponentially more terrible that she intentionally does it when they go to worship, right? I mean, just, it's just a terrible woman. And it's not that she did it once, right? What, what does it say? Verse 7, it went on year after year after year, as often as they went up to the house of the Lord, right? This is when Peninnah would do it. This is when she seized her opportunity, when Hannah couldn't get away from her, when they're there all together eating from the sacrifice, trying to worship the Lord. She has Hannah cornered. She just lays into her and irritates her and provokes her every single year they go up to worship. So we should not be surprised at Hannah's response at the end of verse 7. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, Elkanah, I think, I think he is intending to do his best to comfort her. But I am fearful that what instead what Elkanah has done is what we husbands so often do, which is the misdirected comfort, <laughs> right? Hannah, sweetie, why are you crying? You've got me, baby, right? I mean, that's essentially how it comes across. <laughs> Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Am I not enough for you? And we see later that that, that did not help Hannah, right? Instead, she goes to the temple deeply distressed, deeply distressed. So in the midst of this deep pain and hurt that Hannah was experiencing, I, I want to be sure 
we don't miss out on what I think the author clearly wants us to see in verses 1 through 8. And that is what I mentioned earlier. It was the Lord who closed her womb. This was his doing. And it, it seems clear that he did so in order that he could later demonstrate his sovereign power and glory all the more clearly when he gave her a child. This is how our God loves to operate. One, one commentator put it this way. I love this sentence. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And he has done this time and again. If you read God's word, you see it happening all over the place. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see it happening specifically with this kind of situation over and over and over again. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you see a woman described as being barren, then it probably means you need to just keep reading and watching because the Lord is about to do something miraculous. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren for decades. And when the Lord said, look, you're going to have a son, they, she laughed at him. It was so absurd and ridiculous for how long she had been barren and how old she was at this point. And yet he gave her the promised child, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. And it makes clear that Rebekah was barren until Isaac prayed to the Lord. And then Rebekah conceived Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob gets married and he's one that gets into uh, the two-wife situation that wasn't good with Rachel and Leah. And Rachel, his favorite, was barren until the Lord opens her wounds. And it is from Rachel's womb that comes Joseph and Benjamin. But Joseph in particular, I point out, because it is through Joseph that God saved his people from the famine and kept them alive so that the line of the seed of Judah could continue on so that King Jesus could come into the world. In the book of Judges, we see Manoah's wife is barren, but the angel of the Lord visits her and allows her to conceive Samson, who comes and delivers his people from oppression. In the New Testament, we're told that Elizabeth is barren, but an angel comes to her husband Zechariah and says, Elizabeth is going to have a son, and that son was John the Baptist. See, all these are just examples of God doing the exact same thing he's doing in 1 Samuel throughout history. Because he loves to start with our, total, with our total inability for the glory of his name. But of course, there's numerous other examples. We, we've talked about this frequently in this church and judges in particular. Gideon is one of the judges that God raises up to free his people from the oppression of the foreign nation. And Gideon is ready to go with 32,000 men in his army. And he's ready to wipe out the enemies of Israel. And 32,000 men. And God says to Gideon... That's too many people, Gideon. So he says, look, if any of you are afraid, just head home. And so 20, I think it's 22,000 of them tuck tail and leave, right? Cuts it down by two-thirds. And so now there's only 10,000 of the original 32,000. And God says, yeah, that's, that's still too much. And so there's this strange way of the way they drink the water that God uh, narrows it down even more. But by the time all is said and done, 300 men are left. And God says, yep, that's what I want to go with. Because God loves to start with our total inability for the glory of his name. And so in the same way, the Lord is intentionally orchestrating the events of 1 Samuel chapter 1 in the lives of these individuals so that he brings them to a point of total inability so that that can be the starting point for the work he's going to do through Hannah. He closed her womb for the glory of his name. Look, ultimately, is this not what Christ has done for us? 
He made our total inability his starting point, right? We just sang about it. We don't have much. We don't have anything. He starts with our total inability. While we were still his enemies, he died for us. We were born children of wrath. Before we ever cried out for rescue, he was already orchestrating the events of history to bring Jesus into this world to save you from your sins. This is how God operates. And it's exactly what God is doing here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And even though he's sovereignly orchestrating all these things and he's, he's working to show Hannah's inability, he's the one who closed her womb, yet he still wants her and wants those who he humbles to cry out to him and ask them for him to be at work in their lives, to not forget them, but to remember them, which is exactly what Hannah does. And so let's see the second truth that the Lord hears the cry of the humble. The Lord hears the cry of the humble. Look there with me at this section in verses 9 through 18. So we're told about what's going on, that that Peninnah is just brutally, uh, grievously irritating Hannah. Elkanah has tried frivolously like to, to comfort her, but fell miserably in that. And so after everyone is eaten and drunk in Shiloh, it says Hannah got up. Now, I want to be clear that everybody else had eaten and drank, but it seems clear that Hannah had not. Multiple times it said that she had not eaten, and it's not until she gets up after her praying that she eats. And we're told that she's heading toward the temple of the Lord. The Eli's already there. He's sitting down and she comes to the temple. Verse 10, she is deeply distressed, right? It seems that nobody really understands what Hannah is going through. Elkanah certainly doesn't understand. Peninnah is just dead set against her. She's in this place of loneliness and desperation and she has nowhere else to turn and she is deeply distressed and she's weeping bitterly. You just picture this. She's probably hunched over, fallen down to the ground, convulsing in tears, calling out to the Lord. And verse 11 says that she to make a vow. Now, that's important language because there was Old Testament law connected to making a vow. When a vow was made, it needed to be kept. This isn't like our cheap, the cheap words that we throw out, like when we swear we're going to do something, right? It's not like a peaky swear, right? This is like a for real vow to the Lord of great weight and significance that she is committing to. And there are consequences if people do not keep their vows. And so verse 11, as she is praying, she vows a vow to the Lord. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Just as a brief aside, the no razor touching his head is probably a reference to something known as the Nazarite vow, which was true of Samson, true of Samuel, and probably also John the Baptist. So that's just a quick mention of kind of why that is in there. She was giving him to the Lord, making this commitment to the Lord. She is calling on the Lord in verse 11 to look on her affliction to remember her, not that she thinks God has no thought of her, but she feels as if God is not caring for her. So that's what remember means, to care for me. Don't forget about me. I'm here. I'm suffering. Verse 12 says she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli was watching her, and she was speaking in her heart. She wasn't crying out, just her lips were moving. She was talking to the Lord, but, but quietly, only the Lord could hear her. And Eli says to her, verse 14, because he took her to be a drunken woman, how long 
will you go on being drunk? Now, even this, even this is an indication of the spiritual status of God's people in these days. That the priest of God assumes that someone in the temple who is moving their mouth isn't praying. How often must this have happened where there's just drunk people stumbling through the temple that it's such a foreign concept to Eli that he can't even manage to imagine that this woman could be praying in the temple. Seriously, this was a wicked time in the history of Israel. And he just assumes that she's drunk. But of course, verse 15, she responds and says, No, no, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I love the picture here. She said, Look, look I, haven't been, I haven't been pouring anything into me, but I am pouring myself out. To I am pouring out my heart, my soul, before the Lord, begging and pleading for him to give me a son. Of course, she doesn't tell Eli that detail here. Therefore, verse 16, she says to Eli, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. So Eli, (coughs) Eli realizing that she is pleading to the Lord, that she's not in fact drunk, it doesn't indicate that we know here that, sorry, that Eli knows what she's praying for, but nevertheless, he sees her heart on display. He sees her crying out to the Lord. And so he says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And those words seem to have lifted Hannah's spirits and her soul. And she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she, she, she gets up, she went her way and she eats. She finally is able to eat and her face is no longer sad. Those Words from Eli were encouraging and comforting to her, but I think more than anything, her just simply being able to bear her soul to the Lord brought comfort to her heart. Not having any idea if the Lord would answer her plea, if the Lord would give her this child she was pleading for, but she knew that she had been heard. And so hope returns to her, and her face is no longer sad, and she gets up. You see, she had had cried out to the Lord. She had left her grief in the hands of God. This is so important. This is crucial for us to see. God is teaching us something here because, look, we've seen this over and over again in the Psalms as we've worked our way through the Psalms, and yet here we are again, and the Lord wants to remind you and to remind me of this once more, that he is pleased for those who are suffering and distressed and heartbroken to cry out to him, to plead to him, He wants it. He invites it. He wants us to do this. He wants us to hand over our burdens to him so that he can carry them. And he hears us when we cry out to him. The first truth and the second truth are not conflicting realities. The Lord is the one who closed her womb, yet he still wants her to cry out to him to open it. I mean, I know we talked about this, if not last week, it was the week before. We talked about the suffering that the Lord intentionally brought into the Apostle Paul's life when he gave him a thorn in the flesh that was God's doing to humble him so that he would not be trapped in the sin of pride. And Paul three times pleads to God to remove it from him. Now, in that scenario, God felt what was best is to not remove that from him because It was best for Paul to have that thorn in the flesh so that he would not give in to the sin of pride. But yet, God was pleased, I believe, that Paul cried out to him. And even though Paul didn't get what he thought he wanted, 
The fact that he cried out to God brought clarity to why he was suffering, that his suffering was for his ultimate good, that God was accomplishing something in the midst of it. So it's not to say that when we cry out, we will always get the desires of our heart, but it is to say that God will bring us peace and comfort over time. And he will clarify why he has placed us in this situation. And God's word makes clear that it will be and it is for our good. Romans 8, 28. So the Lord will intentionally humble the faithful to teach us to depend on him. And when he does that, he wants the humble, those who have been humble, to cry out to him in the midst of our suffering. And it is so that, and this leads us to our third truth, it is so that the Lord can use the humble for his glory. So that the Lord can use the humble for his glory. Look with me at this final section in verses 19 through 28. I love, by the way, that this section is kind of bookmarked by worshiping. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then at the very end of verse 28, and he worshiped the Lord there. You see, when, the God, when God responds to the cries of his people, it leads to the worship by his people. It leads to God's people worshiping him when they call out to him and he responds, which is exactly what God did for Hannah. Verse 19, they, they rise early and they get up and they worship before the Lord and they head back home. Elkanah and his, all of his family, Hannah, Peninnah, and all of them, they, they go back to their house at Ramah. And at that point, we're told that Elkanah knew his wife and the, because the Lord remembered her, cared for her, as she had specifically asked him to do, because of that, Hannah is able to conceive and to bear a son. And it's because of the context, because of what we were told, right, that the Lord had closed her womb, that she wasn't able to have children because the Lord had closed her womb, because she cried out to the Lord. So by the time we get to verse 20, that she has she has been able to conceive and have a son, we know that it is because of the supernatural intervention of God himself, right? That verse, verse 20, apart from the rest of chapter 1, would not be miraculous to us if we weren't told the important background information. See, it's all building to this so that we can see the hand of God at work for the glory of his name. And he graciously gives her a son, and she names him Samuel. And now the time goes on, and it's now verse 21. It is the next year. It's time for Elkanah and his family to head back to Shiloh to worship the Lord. Because remember, Elkanah does this every single year. And they're getting ready to head back. But Hannah says, I'm not quite ready to, to go yet. We need to uh, have Samuel wean first before I will be able to take him. And uh, Elkanah's response is simply, that's fine. You see that in verse 23. Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. This is, this is Elkanah's way of saying, let's just be sure that we keep the vows that we have made. And of course, Hannah has every intention of doing that. Now, we don't know exactly what age is being referred to here in this culture, in this context at this time, when it says that Hannah was waiting until she would wean the child. There are some historical indications around this time that it probably would have been around age three. But that's speculation. What we do know is that it says in, uh, at the end of verse 24 that the child was young. So we know that with certainty, but we don't with precision know how old Samuel would have been when it happened. But what we do know is that Hannah kept her word to the Lord, which is what verse 24 tells us. When she had weaned him, she took him up 
with her, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And as I mentioned, the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull. They made this sacrifice before the Lord. And she brings the child to Eli, which she had committed to do. And now let's zero in on verses 26 through 28. Hannah speaking to Eli says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made. So verses 26 and 27 are intended to leave us with, with no doubt and no question that it was the Lord's doing that he had given Samuel to Hannah. Everyone recognizes this. Hannah recognizes this, that this is God's work, that he has used the cry of the humble and the lowly Hannah to give her a child. And now she is giving this child to the Lord. You see that in verse 28? Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And as a result of what Hannah has done, it seems that he is at the end of verse 28 is referring to Eli. Though we can't be certain, it could be referring to Samuel, though he would have been relatively young at this point. But nevertheless, what God has done resulted in the worship, as I mentioned, the worship of his people, acknowledging that the hand of the God is the one who brought this to pass. That the Lord orchestrated all of these events so that he might be glorified. And that all that God has done to bring this situation to pass, of course, reaches even beyond the life of Hannah. This is what I want to be sure we see as we conclude this morning. God intentionally brought Hannah low. He humbled her by causing her to be barren, by closing her womb to show the glory of his name so that he could miraculously respond to her prayers and bring Samuel into the world. And it is through Samuel, the prophet, that God will call his people back to himself in chapter 7. We're going to see that happen later in 1 Samuel. He tells them finally, put away the bells, put away the astroth, stop worshiping these false idols, return to God. And so he uses Samuel to call his people back to himself. But not only that, it is through Samuel, it is through him that, that God anoints King David. It is through the prophet Samuel that David is selected and anointed as king. And of course, we know that it is from the line of David, he who sits on the throne of Judah, that our Savior and King Jesus would come into this world. And so you see, it is even, even here, we are reminded that the Lord was already at work for your salvation when he closed Hannah's womb, right? Before you drew your first breath, God was already at work to bring the Savior into the world by bringing this lowly, humble woman from a small town by causing her to be barren so that he could give her a child to show the glory of his name, to bring Samuel into the world, to anoint King David, to lead to King Jesus. This is how our God operates. He loves to start with our total inability so that he might get all the glory. You see, God tells us how he operates in the world. One of the main reasons we have the Old Testament is one, to point us to Jesus, of course, but to show us that the way he gets to Jesus is through unexpected uh, ways, by working through his people in unexpected ways, by even working through the suffering of his people. And even as the New Testament reminds us that God is pleased to work through our suffering for the glory of his name, to teach us to depend on him and to lean on him and to call out to him. And just as he was faithful 
throughout history to hear the cries of the people that he has placed in positions of suffering. He will be faithful today and tomorrow and forever. He is faithful to us even when we don't cry out to him. He is faithful to us when we do cry out to him. This is the God we serve who brought Jesus into the world to rescue us from our sin, that we might have eternal life. And he was working 3,000 years ago in this lowly woman's life for your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you, that you take our total inability, that you even intentionally put us in positions of total inability, that you might be glorified, that much might be made of you. And so, Father, I just pray that you would remind us of the humility of Christ, who willingly humbled himself and took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. He humbled himself. He laid down his life on the cross in our place. And it is through his humility that you achieved our salvation through his life and his death and his glorious resurrection. Father, we are, we are thankful that even when you humble us, you hear us. You hear us when we cry out to you. You care for us. We are always heard uh, at the foot of your throne because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place. And Father, we know, even though we can't always fully understand why you have us in difficult positions in life, we can't always understand exactly why you have brought suffering into our life. We can have every confidence that you intend to use it for our good and for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that passages like this would continuously remind us of that reality, just as you use the suffering of Christ for the glory of your name and for the rescue of your people. Father, we're so thankful that before we even drew our first breath, you were working to bring our Savior into this world, to keep your promise that you made in Genesis 3.15, to bring a seed of Eve into the world who would crush the head of Satan, to bring a king into the world through the line of Judah, through King David, for the glory of your name. So we are thankful that you brought King Jesus into this world to rescue us and redeem us. And so, Father, even now as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, to your table, where we are reminded of the broken body of Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. I pray that the promises would be all the more precious to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.